Well, if you guys have been following along with us in our study of the life of Jesus as John presents him to us in his gospel, then you know that for several weeks now, we've come to the teaching and have been studying the teaching that Jesus gives on the very night that he's betrayed. So this is the night that he's going to begin to suffer for our sin. And if you're here with us last week, you know that he then brought up the topic of suffering, but what was interesting is that he did not bring up the topic of his suffering so much as ours. He brought up the topic of my suffering, he brought up the topic of your suffering, and he pulled out like a big old sheet full of labels and whipped out his Sharpie pen and said, I'm going to give it a name. And the name he did not give it was punishment. It was remarkable how many people came up to me and said that was the part of the message that impressed them. God is not punishing me, they said. And and why did they say that? Because that's the gospel, guys. Jesus Christ received our punishment for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And He didn't receive a little bit of it. He received the whole of it, infinitely, eternally, completely in His person on the cross. Jesus says, look, I'm going to talk to you about your suffering. I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to put a label on it, and I've got my Sharpie out, and the word is not punishment. And it's not cursing either. The New Testament comes to us and it teaches us that Jesus Christ bore our curse on the cross again. Not some of it, not most of it, all of it. It's not wrath. It's not judgment. What was the word? Jesus says, let me give it to you. Here it is. Starts with a P. It's pruning. Last week, he came to us with this now incredibly famous agricultural analogy, and he used it to teach us some things about, first of all, who he is, secondly, who we are, thirdly, who his father is within the context of all of this. And then he said, now I'm going to tell you what our goal is, the goal of the son, the goal of the father for you guys, and then here's what it's going to take. He came and he said, I am the vine. That's who I, Jesus Christ, am in this analogy. And you who really believe in me, You whose faith is authentic, you guys, you're my branches. My father, by the way, is the vine dresser, and we all pulled out the thesaurus and the dictionary, and we're like, vine dresser? You know, he's the farmer. He's the gardener. And what is the goal of the son who is the vine and the father who is the farmer? It's the goal of every vine. It's the goal of every farmer. It is the maximum production of fruit through the branches that are me and you. But what's it going to take? I'll give you a hint. He put a label on it. It's going to take printing. Guys, Jesus Christ resides in heaven physically right now. He lived. He suffered. He died. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Did he not? He lives in heaven right now. How is it that Jesus goes to work in this world? Let me change it a little bit. How does he bring forth the fruit of his life present day right now in this world? He does it by the Holy Spirit through his branches. Branches that are pruned. And that's the Father's activity. So then you've got to say, well, then what's my activity? You know, because I missed it last week, Tom. So what's my activity? What's your activity? I mean, what part do we have in this whole fruit-producing process other than I, I realize I guess I'm going to have to be pruned? But, I mean, aside from that, what do I do? Because it kind of sounds like, you know, Jesus is sending us out and saying, now go out there and bear fruit for me. But that's not the way it works. I mean, again, just think about it agriculturally. 
A branch does not bear fruit by cutting itself off from the vine and running off in its own strength. You're like, what what strength would that be? Well, that's part of the problem. And then, you know, kind of getting off somewhere else in the vineyard and eking out a grape. It doesn't work that way. When the branches separate themselves from the vine, what is it that they do? They wither and they die. If a branch is really interested in bearing fruit, he has to do two things. Number one, it has to abide in the vine. It has to stay vitally connected to the vine. The connection to the vine is the singular, most significant and important thing that any branch that actually desires to produce fruit, and again, that's the goal, does. And what happens when we abide in the vine? What happens is that His life by the Spirit begins to flow into us. And, and then what happens? Well, what happens is then we begin to grow and flourish. We start sprouting leaves and things, and we get all green and full of life. And, and, and then what happens? Then spontaneously, organically, naturally, natively, without any compulsion on our part, we just start springing forth fruit, and sometimes we're the most surprised person to see it. Bam! There's a grape. That was cool. Boom! There's a whole cluster. It's natural. So how do you abide in the vine? little reprise of last week. You abide in the vine who is Jesus by abiding in prayer. You cannot fruitfully abide in Jesus and not talk to Him. And I know what you want to say because I've talked to so many people about prayer, and here's kind of the sort of synopsis of most of the conversations. I don't know what to say to God, Tom. You know, this whole prayer thing feels really awkward to me. I, I just, I'm like, I'm talking to myself. I, you know, I need, I mean, I don't know what to do with this thing. I come to church and I let you pray for me. Well, that's wonderful. Join me in prayer and Matt and the others as we pray together as a community. And that is a wonderful thing. But learn how to pray as part of a community too. My challenge to you, if that's your testimony, is find somebody whose spirituality, whose walk with the Lord, whose fruit, if you will, of Christ is evident in their lives. Take them to lunch and ask them to mentor you in prayer. You cannot fruitfully abide in the vine and not talk to the vine who is Christ. But then secondly, what did he say? He said, well, look, you got to be in my word. I mean, you can't fruitfully abide in me and ignore my word either. We've been talking for weeks, actually, for two years about Bibles in the laps. Like, I get excited when I see your Bible in your lap. I really do. It thrills me to know, and we want you to have a Bible in your lap so badly that we make them available in the back after every single service, every single week, and we say to you, look, we so value you having this thing that if you can buy it and you can afford it, then that's great, and we give it to you at our cost. If you can't pay what you can, if you can't pay anything, and this is your church, and you're going to open it up, and it's going to be in your lap, take it. It's yours. But use it. It's why we've been talking for weeks about this personal worship study plan, because see, that's the other challenge for us. It's like, okay, now I've got a Bible in my lap, and now the Bible is open, even though it is a study Bible and has all kinds of notes, and so it helps you to understand what's going on. How do I study the Bible? How do I interact with God through His Word in a meaningful way such that His life flows into me, transforms me, makes me green? Yes, there's some pruning, but sustains me through it, and then brings forth cluster after cluster of grapes to the glory of the Father. How? Go to Rio University, personal worship plan, read, 
about how we're proposing as one of the, I think, better ways to try to do that. Get the personal study plan week by week by week. Sign up for the email. It'll come to you every day that you might abide. Lastly, Jesus said, look, if you're going to abide in me, then here's the deal. You need to lovingly, meaning out of your love for me, obey my commandments. It's not enough to know the word. We have to live the word. Obey my commandments. Obedience is part of abiding in Christ. And as we do these things, you see, we abide in Jesus. We humbly submit to His pruning, recognizing that it comes from the hand of one who is far wiser and sees a lot farther than we do. As we do these things, what starts happening spontaneously, organically, naturally, natively, is, you know, His life starts flowing into us, and we then become like maximum producers of the fruit of the life of Jesus Christ. And what happens then is that, for example, we start seeing things like selfless sacrificial love show up in our lives. Selfless sacrificial love that replaces and really stands in opposition to selfish animosity. That transition occurs. And we start producing the fruit of the light of Jesus as opposed to the darkness that marks this world. And we start producing the fruit of the the wisdom of Jesus as opposed to the foolishness that marks the world that we live in. We start producing the fruit of the order of Jesus as opposed to this world's chaos, the life of Jesus, as opposed to this world's many, many, many forms of death. But then what happens to us, because this is where we're picking up our study today, what is the world's reaction to the production of the life of Jesus Christ through me and through you? Because it's not what you would expect. I mean, if you just step back from it, you go, "Ah, I don't really know much about this, but it kind of seems to me that, I don't know, I mean, a world that is devoid of authentic and true selfless and sacrificial love and full of selfish animosity would probably embrace that sacrificial love when it came about. A world full of darkness would embrace light. Foolishness would embrace wisdom. Chaos would embrace order. Death would embrace life. You would think that. But it's not what happens. It's not what happened to Jesus, and it's not what happens to us. And so Jesus, on this night that he's betrayed, having this final discourse, if you will, with his disciples, who he knows are about to go through a massive season of pruning, because they're going to see him die, but then they will see him rise as well. And then they themselves will face the same kind of animosity that he's faced. Listen to what the Lord says to us, because he says it to us, lest we become discouraged and give way to the temptation, and this is the temptation, to forsake the love of Christ, that we might gain the love of this world. He tells us in advance that our faith would be strengthened when it occurs, not weakened, because what we'll see is that our Lord has foreseen it all, and that all of it Even the most difficult parts are part of his good and perfect plan for us and for the world. And so we pick up our study today in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, where Jesus says this. He says, if the world hates you. Now, what he's saying here really is when the world hates you. He's assuming that's what's going to happen, guys. So he's saying, really, when the world hates you, here's what I want you to know. And I want you to know it in advance so it doesn't throw you off. I want you to know that it has hated me before it hated you and, well... Actually, it hates you because it hates me. Oh, and by the way, as you produce the the fruit of my life, well, through your life, 
its animosity is going to grow, not lessen. And why is that exactly? It's because selfish or selfless, sacrificial love stands in stark contrast to and thus, and here's the key word, exposes selfish animosity. Light is not anything at all like darkness. In fact, what it does is it exposes darkness and the dark deeds that are done in the darkness. Wisdom stands in contrast to foolishness, and in fact, it exposes foolishness. There is a fruit of wisdom, and there is a fruit of foolishness, and one reveals the other. There's an exposing thing. See, order exposes chaos. Life exposes death. And here's the bottom line. The world does not like to be exposed. And you know what? Neither do I. And neither do you. As I was thinking about this message, I was just thinking about the gospel, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why the gospel is so incredibly offensive is because the gospel comes to us and asks us to look at ourselves not in light of each other. That's what we do typically. But that's like darkness, you know, looking at darkness. Jesus Christ comes to us and he says, no, look, in the light of my life, you look at you. And what we see then is who and what we really are. And I just want to pause and say, that's traumatic. It's not comfortable. That's not fun. That doesn't feel good. But why does he expose us? He exposes us that he might heal us. And some come to him in faith. Some look at themselves and look at Christ and go, you know what? This actually is who I am. And I'm not going to reject that, and I'm not going to deny that, and I'm not going to downplay that, and I'm not going to minimize that, and I'm not going to try to hide that, and I'm not going to run away. But instead, I'm going to own this and say, yep, that's me. And I'm going to run to the only one who can cleanse and heal me. Now, some do that. But what Jesus is telling us is that most don't. They will not. And instead, they will revile that message and that Savior. And they'll revile Him and you. So that sounds like fun. If you abide in the vine and you begin organically to bear His fruit, you will inevitably, at times, face the hostility for the bearing of that fruit. And so Jesus says, look, I'm going to tell you about it in advance so it doesn't discourage you when it happens, but it encourages you knowing that I knew it all in advance, foresaw it, and will even use it. He says again in verse 18, if the world hates you or really when it does, I want you to know something. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then I want you to know as well, he goes on, and he says that if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now, hang on a second. As you're studying through the Bible, don't you got to stop there and go, hey, um, I think there's like a little test in that statement. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Does it? If the world hates you, and I want you to know that it hated me before it hated you, and if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And let's just be honest with each other for a minute. Kind of what we'd like. It's a lot easier that way. 
And all of us, all of us, all of us have taken opportunities to speak of Jesus and taken opportunities to live for Jesus and taken opportunities to glorify Jesus and taking opportunities to bear fruit for Jesus and stuffed it and hidden it away in those awkward moments to purchase peace with the world. All of us. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own. But then he says, because you are not of the world. And now he's going to tell us why. And this too is humbling, I hope. Because what he's going to say is, all right, you're not of the world. And it's not because you're any better. It's not because you're any smarter or any better looking. It has nothing whatsoever to do with your personal sensibilities. You were not born natively any different from anyone else in the world. There is one singular reason why you are not of the world if you are not of the world. And here it is. He tells us, he says, but I chose you out of the world and called you to abide in me and then began to transform you, replacing selfish animosity with selfless sacrificial love. Darkness with light, foolishness with wisdom, chaos with order, death of all kinds with life. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world if indeed you are out of the world. And then he says, therefore, the world hates you, to which he adds, remember the word that I said to you. There are things he wants us to remember here. He says, a servant. Now, who is that? That's us in relation to him. That's, that's me. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That's the Lord, you see. And then he goes on and he says, so therefore he's saying, if they persecuted me, well, guess what's going to happen to you? They will persecute you as well. And then he says, and if they kept my word, and some did. Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God. He went about preaching the gospel. And look, he's talking to a group of guys who... The Spirit worked through to turn the whole world upside down. But they're the minority of the group that he spoke to. He's saying some will respond, not all. Not most, but some. He says, look, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours in like fashion is the point. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. And here's why. Because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know the Father. For if they did, they would know the Son. And if they knew the Son, they would recognize him. And the fruit of his life in me and in you To which he adds, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but they have now they have no excuse for their sin, so they've rejected his word. You see, he says, for whoever hates me hates my father also, and if I had not done among them the works, so they reject also his works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And ironically now, he says, and they did that in fulfillment of their own Bible, but the word that is written in their law, he says, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. And I just kind of want to exhale with you for a second and unpack some of it, okay? Man, what a mouthful. What is Jesus saying? Well, I think he's saying a lot of things. And first of all, I think he's saying that if we're truly abiding in the vine, it was Jesus and his life is actually flowing into our lives. Our lives are going to be different from the lives of the people around us who don't know Jesus. 
Because selfless, sacrificial love is different from selfish animosity. Light is different from darkness. Wisdom is different from foolishness. Order is different from chaos. Life is different from death. And look, not a little bit different. Significantly different. I think secondly, he's saying, look, if we're, we're going to know if we're different by the way the world reacts to us. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Thirdly, I think he's saying that if we belong to Jesus and not to this world, it's not because we're any better than anyone else. It's rather his work of grace in our life, his sovereign choice in our life. Honestly, guys, I mean, if you just work that through for a minute, you meditate thoughtfully on these kinds of things, which is what you're called to do as you take in the Bible. I'm not just reading it so I can check it off a list. I'm not just taking it in so I can say, well, I read that chapter today. I'm interacting it with it. I'm eating it like a meal. I'm chewing on it and digesting it that it might show up in, in the nourishment of my soul and in the fruit of my life. I've got to stop and think about that idea for a moment and recognize that of all the different communities of people on this planet, the Christian community should be the single most humble group of people that exists. Why? Because we've actually looked at ourselves in the light of Jesus Christ, seen ourselves for who we really are, and owned it. And then recognized... Beyond that, that we didn't do anything to earn the salvation or grace of our God, but rather He just freely bestowed upon it in the mystery of His good and perfect will. He decided to pluck us out of the fire and to make out of ashes things that are beautiful, to make out of the clay of humanity vessels unto honor. So who gets the praise for that? Because I'm thinking, not us. Just Him. And that needs to begin to translate in our attitudes toward the world, in the way that we interact with people. We need to come as those who interact humbly. We don't need to stand proudly in the midst of the world and fight against the world. We need to come after the fashion of our Lord and humbly seek to give our lives away in service to the world. Jesus wept over the city that He knew would crucify him. And from the cross in agony, he cried out for the forgiveness of the people who literally nailed him to it. Wow. How has your attitude been this election season? Fourthly, I think that Jesus is saying that there is a cost to following him in this world. I'm going to give you an example you already know. We saw it this week with Dan Cathy from Chick-fil-A. There's a cost to following him. Now, I happen to like Chick-fil-A. Um, I find their waffle fries to be like crack, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Every once in a while at about three, I wake up in a cold sweat and I'm just needing a waffle fry, you know, so off to Pompano I go. Honestly, I love their product, and it has nothing to do with their ownership or their stance on anything, but that doesn't hurt, at least for me. My understanding, and I don't know the people, I haven't talked to them, I'm not the official Chick-fil-A historian or anything like that, 
My understanding is that this is a company founded by a Christian family and founded upon principles that are biblical. Okay, so for example, from the inception of their company and for many, many, many decades now, all the way down to today, they are closed on Sunday. Why do they do that? Is it because it's good for business? I haven't noticed anyone else doing that because they value the Lord more than money. Think about that. They value him more than buckets full of money at this point. Don't you think? Their service is excellent. Their waffle fries, again, like, sorry, I know I'm confused. Some of you are totally distracted now. You're just gone. Their product is excellent. They value excellence to the glory of God. They play Christian music in their stores. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like, I I think that people who don't know Christian music well probably don't necessarily pick up on that. But, I mean, if you listen to a lot of it, you kind of know it. You walk in the store and you hear it and go, wow, that's kind of cool. Interesting. They've poured millions into the various communities in which they have stores. And, you know, I mean, I guess you can be cynical about that and go, well, that's marketing and lots of corporations do that. Okay, fine. Maybe. But what about this marriage thing? It seems like they've kind of gone out of their way on this one, don't you think? Somehow, it seems like the Lord has apparently laid on their hearts a passion for helping people have fruitful marriages and using, parenthetically, biblical principles that are proven to help them to do that. Now, if you just back away from the controversy and set your passions aside for a minute and just look at that, that's kind of nice, isn't it? I mean, I think that's okay until you have to then define marriage, which, of course, that's exactly what he had to do this week, didn't it? And I want you to think about that, too. Who are we as Christians? We are people called out of this world by the power of the Spirit of God, made alive from the dead by God Himself, purchased by Jesus Christ at the expense of His precious blood, and subject to Him in every single metaphor that you find in the Bible. He is the King, we are the subjects, He is the Father, we are the children, He is the Master. You heard that one today, we are the servants. Find me one where it's the other way around. And we are a word-based people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? By the Word of God. We are a people who by faith say this thing called the Bible is God's Word. I'm just moving through it dispassionately. That means it stands above us. We don't stand above it. Let's just make it personal. I am not the critic of God's Word in my life. It is the critic of me. It unmasks me. Now, I don't unmask it. It convicts me. I don't convict it. It judges me. I don't judge it. And praise God, it comes to me with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace as well. The grace of the blood of Jesus Christ flows to me out of every page of that word. But I am not the authority over it. It is the authority over me, which means that when it says something, my faith comes to me and says, look, you know, that's going to be terrifically inconvenient for you. That's not going to work so well in your family. That's not going to work so well in your business. That's not going to play all that well in this city, in this world, in this culture, in this whatever. But here's the deal. It's come from the mind of the one who governs over all things, including you, Tom. Now, I don't know Dan Cathy, never met him, probably never will. But if he's looking at this as a Christian... 
and someone comes to him and says, hey, I notice you guys do a lot of stuff for people who are married. How do you define marriage? A, I don't think he was at all surprised by the question. I mean, can't you see that one coming? B, I don't think he gave an answer off the cuff. I think he had thought about it well in advance. And C, what is the answer of faith? The answer of faith is that God has not left this particular topic up to me to figure out. He hasn't left it up to a city. He hasn't left it up to a culture. He didn't say, you know what, I I authored this, I invented this, I created this, and I did it for my glory, and I did it for the good of humanity, by the way, as well. But here's the deal. If it ever becomes really awkward, I think Dan Cathy did the right thing. He said, you know what? My Lord has decided this for me, and here's what it is. It's the union of one man and of one woman. He is a conviction-based person, and honestly, based on those convictions, unless he's going to sell them out, he cannot say anything else, can he? There is a cost to following Jesus. It's cost him untold numbers of dollars. He's been called all kinds of names. But wait, he's just parroting God's words, right? So then who's getting called the names? If they hate you, know this, they hated me first, Jesus says. Do you know that the vice president of of, uh, public relations for Chick-fil-A had a heart attack and died this week? in the midst of this. There's a cost to following Jesus, and John and Jesus wants us to know that, like while we're considering whether or not to become a believer in Christ. It's fascinating, and it's very different from the message that we get today. Jesus really is not the cosmic Tony Robbins that he gets presented as being, and he gets presented as being that almost all the time. Over and over and over again, I hear a gospel that I'm going to put in quotes in which Jesus is presented as that. In essence, Jesus is presented like this. Yes, Jesus will forgive you of your sins, and yes, through faith in Jesus, you can die and go to heaven and be assured of that. So he's fire insurance, but we know that that's not really what you're interested in. What you're really interested in is a self-help program by which you can take your self-manufactured goals and dreams and agendas and all of these various things, and Jesus can kind of come alongside of you and make those dreams come true. Well, that's not Jesus. And he's not ambiguous about that. He's not unclear. He doesn't stutter. He speaks very directly to it. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, if you're going to enter into a love relationship with me, here's the deal. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Every day I'm going to ask you to get up and take your self-manufactured dreams and goals and ambitions and agendas for your life and nail them to the cross. I'm going to ask you to die to them and then to abide in me and to let my life flow into you. And with his life that flows into us, what else do we get? We get his dreams for us, his goals for us, his agenda for us, his ambitions for us. And here's the really cool thing, because there is a sense in which, ironically, Jesus does make all of our dreams come true. That's just not the original set of dreams we came to him with. We nail those to the cross. He then gives to us his dreams, goals, and ambitions for us, for our family, for our business, for this city, etc. And then he makes those dreams come true. That's the purposeful life. That's the meaning-filled life. That's the fruitful life. 
There's a cost to following the Lord, and I love what he says next in verse 26, because he's saying, oh, and by the way, you get some help on this deal. That's good. I need that. He says this, verse 26, but when the, what, helper comes, Jesus is in this moment on planet earth. He is going to be crucified. He is going to die. He will be buried. He will be raised from the dead. He will ascend into heaven, and then the helper's going to come. We are living in the day and age of the help of the helper, and I, for one, am very thankful for for that. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, the helper is the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? He will bear witness about me. How will he do that? Will he call CNN and have like a press conference? Will he travel around the country and have, you know, town hall meetings? How does Jesus Christ in heaven produce the fruit of his life, which includes his witness in this world today? By the Holy Spirit, through his branches. He will bear witness about me, Jesus says, and you also will bear witness because... And now he's referring specifically to these original guys. You guys have been with me from the beginning. And then he says this, chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. He said, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. I know that some difficulty will come your way as a result of my name. No matter how humble you are, no matter how loving you are, no matter how, you know, copacetic you seek to be, If you live with convictions, sometimes it'll be tough. He says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They, the world, will put you out of the synagogues, he says to this little band of guys. They're going to excommunicate you from their community, he's saying. Indeed, the hour is coming when when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And again, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, when they happen, you may remember that I told them to you in advance. And your faith can be strengthened knowing that I foresaw it all and that it's all part of my good and perfect plan. All right, so that's the end of the text for today. How do you end the message? You know, I mean, like you get to the end of that and you go, and you wrap it up like, yeah. Can I ask you some questions? And as I go through these questions, I want you to say, Holy Spirit, which one of these questions is for me? And as you shine the light of your truth into my heart, what's my real condition in regard to this question? I mean, what's, what, who and what am I really in answer to this question? And who and what can I be? For the questions are hopeful in that sense. See, they all present us with two different options. I can reject it, ignore it, deny it, run away from it, or own it, embrace it, receive it, and run to the Lord. Question number one, are you of the world or are you of Christ? Have you endured the trauma of admitting to yourself and to Him who you really are, what you really are, and come to Him for healing, for He freely offers it. He's purchased it for you in His work on the cross. 
Number two, are you abiding in the vine or separate from the vine? How's your prayer life really? How is it? How is your personal worship, your time in God's Word? Number three, are you humbly submitting to God's pruning or are you rebelling and resenting and fighting against it? Boy, it's so easy to do that, isn't it? Faith gives you the imagination by which you can say, though you can't see, smell, hear, taste, or touch it, some, how, God, and only God can do this. God's going to bring good fruit out of this, either in heaven or on earth. Number four, is your life marked more by selfless, sacrificial love or selfish animosity? By light or darkness? By wisdom or foolishness? by order or chaos, by life and all the emblems thereof, or by death, or to put it differently, does your life really look any different from the lives of those around you, those people in your school or at your job or wherever it is that you are, your little world who don't know the Savior? Are you different? And have you ever experienced any of their stiff-arming? any of their disdain, any criticism at all for the Lord Jesus and for the gospel. Number five, are you humble before this unbelieving world or are you proud? Is that the one the Spirit wants you to think through? Do you fight against the world or do you, like Jesus, fight for it? Do you stand opposed to the world or do you lay down your life that the world through the one you represent, might be saved. Number six, do you stand under God's Word or above it? Do you judge it or does it judge you? Do you look at God's Word, you know, like a salad bar? You just get your plate and decide which ones you want. Like, I'll take some of those kidney beans. I don't dig sprouts, not going to lie. Is that it? And is that healthy? Last question, is following Jesus costly to you? Does it cost you time? Does it cost you money? Does it cost you energy, effort, prayer, reputation? Is it costly to you? Because it it is our privilege to bear the cost You see, our suffering for Jesus ends the same way His sufferings end. And how is that? In eternal glory. It's a beautiful thing. So, there you go. Spend some time this afternoon, intentional time. Carve it out, you and the vine. What question did the Spirit impress upon you? What answer is true of you in terms of, okay, yeah, um, that's who I really am here. And what is the hope of the gospel then that you might go fruitfully into the world?